probably met those people before. You know, the ones that say, I'll only watch a foreign movie if it's done in the original language with subtitles. I think overdubbing foreign movies into English should be a crime. Hey, I'm not one of those people. Hello there. Welcome to Celluloid Days, a podcast of film and film history. My name is Jeff Kelly, and I'll be your host for the next half hour or so. You know, sometimes overdubbing a movie into English works just fine. Some people say you lose some of the meaning or some of the emotions of the performance when it's dubbed over by another actor. Maybe you do, but, you know, how much of the performance do you lose when you're spending your time reading subtitles rather than watching the actor's face? And who's to say that the subtitles are even translated correctly? And some films, let's face it, it just doesn't matter. Gamera vs. Gaios is fine with overdubs. That being said, there are times when I enjoy a movie in its original language. There's films like Rashomon or The Seventh Seal that I think should be watched in their original form. As far as Godzilla films go, most are fine dubbed in English, but, you know, the original, the very first one, the 1954 classic in which we're talking about today, you should probably watch that with subtitles. Well... I'll be honest with you, you have to watch it with subtitles. I don't think the original's available any other way. Unless, of course, you're going to watch it with Raymond Burr, but that's not the film we're talking about. The problem with the original Godzilla is it's hard to get people to take it seriously. That's due to all the films that came after the original. I remember seeing a lot of those films on TV when I was a kid, you know, like Mothra vs. Godzilla, Ghidra the Three-Headed Monster, or Destroy All Monsters. And even as a child, I enjoyed the silliness of men in rubber monster suits. I don't think I ever took them too seriously. I mean, those toy tanks and boats didn't fool anybody. Even the first film, Godzilla King of the Monsters, as it was released here in the States was still just a Godzilla film. It never occurred to me that Raymond Burr didn't belong in the movie. What has happened here was caused by a force which, up until a few days ago, was entirely beyond the scope of man's imagination. Tokyo, a smoldering memorial to the unknown. An unknown which, at this very moment, still prevails and could, at any time, lash out with its terrible destruction anywhere else in the world. 
All that changed in 2004. For the first time in the United States, the original Japanese film played in theaters. Up till that point, it was never seen in the U.S. My wife and I went to see it at the Music Box Theater in Chicago. It was the original Japanese film, uncut, with English subtitles. We saw a film that was much different from the one we remembered from our childhood, both in content and in tone. The thing about the giant monster in the 1954 film is, it's the bad guy. No question. Godzilla walks over homes, it kills men, women, and children as if they are nothing more than bugs. An example of that is the mother who's on the ground hugging her two kids as the city's being destroyed and telling them, we're going to go see your father now. One gets the impression that the father had been lost in the war and mom knows now it's their time. One must remember that Godzilla was released only nine years after the end of World War II. Many of those memories were still in the minds of so many people. The serious tone of the film, as compared with the later ones, was due to the arrival of the nuclear age. From the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki to the hydrogen bomb used on Bikini Atoll 10 years later, Japan knew the horror of the bomb better than most. When the bomb was dropped on Bikini Atoll, a Japanese fishing ship with 23 men aboard called Lucky Dragon No. 5 was supposed to be in the safe zone, but the planned 6-megaton explosion became a 15-megaton explosion. The fishermen saw the explosion and seven minutes later heard it. Two hours after that, a cloud of nuclear fallout in the form of ash poured down on the fishing boat. Several of the crewmen started to get sick. One died six months later, and it is believed that at least five more died of cancer in later years. The opening of the film Godzilla was a direct reference to Lucky Dragon number five. large prehistoric monster was a symbol for nuclear destruction. Producer Tamuki Tanaka stated that the theme of this film from the beginning was the terror of the bomb. Mankind had created the bomb and now nature was going to take revenge on mankind. Director Hiroshia Honda stated if Godzilla had been a dinosaur or some other animal he could have been killed with one cannonball. But if he were equal to the atomic bomb we wouldn't know what to do. So I took the characteristics of the atomic bomb and applied them to Godzilla. The whole film began with plans to make another film to be shot in Indonesia, but that fell through. Producer Tamamuki Tanaka was under pressure to come up with a new idea. He had been following the story of Lucky Dragon 5, and as the story goes, was on a plane looking down at the ocean when he imagined a giant monster rising up. He also was thinking of the 1953 American film Beasts from 20,000 Phantoms about a dinosaur who is resurrected by atomic testing in the Arctic. 
to properly understand this, it's not only important to remember the horror that Japanese had been through with the bombing at the end of the war, but once the war was over, Japan had been occupied by Allied forces for seven years. From 1945 to 1952, the Japanese film industry was forbidden to make films about the war or the bombings. At the same time, the Cold War between Russia and the U.S. was getting into high gear, and that brought the fears of atomic warfare back to those in Japan. After all, their neighbors were both North Korea and China. And, of course, there was Lucky Dragon number 5. So the best way to make a film about the horrors of nuclear war was to make a giant monster film. The working title of the film was The Giant Monster from 20,000 Miles Beneath the Sea. Tanaka made no attempt to hide his inspiration. In presenting his idea to Toho executives, Tanaka brought the newspaper story of Lucky Dragon 5 with him. At the time, science fiction and horror films were pretty rare in Japan, so this film was a pretty radical idea. Tanaka was told to talk to special effects man Eiji Soberaya to see if such things were possible. And before I go on, I want to quickly point out that I'm doing my best with some of these Japanese names. I hope that if there's any Japanese listeners to this program, they'll forgive me for my bad pronunciation. Anyway... Tsuburaya was a huge fan of the 1933 film King Kong, which had recently been re-released internationally, and he always dreamed of making a monster movie. And he also loved a good challenge. He experienced filming miniatures for battle scenes in war and propaganda films during the war, and that made him ideal for this project. With Tsuburaya on board, the film was put into production. To make the film, they picked a young director named Ishiro Honda. Honda had been an assistant to the legendary filmmaker Akira Kurosawa. He was the perfect man for the job. He had been a POW during World War II, and when he returned to Japan after the war, he saw the devastation of Hiroshima with his own eyes. This image haunted Honda for the rest of his life, and he said it heavily influenced the way he directed Godzilla. He was known as a tremendously focused director, so much so that his wife said in a BBC documentary interview that he would give up drinking his beloved sake for the duration of filming, not touch a drop till it was over. Those who worked with him described him as a wonderful man to work with, always cheerful and gentlemanly, a man that never got angry. To come up with the story, they hired Shigeru Kiyama, who at one time was a popular science fiction and horror novelist. Kiyama came up with the treatment for Godzilla. His original concept of the monster was originally a wild beast who came to shore looking for food, wanting to feed on animals. And the character of Dr. Yamano was of a mad scientist wearing a cape who lived in a gothic-style house. His treatment, however, did have the four original main characters and the Oxygen Destroyer. Before they had a name for the monster, the film was just called Project G, G standing for giant. The name Gojira was a combination of the Japanese words for gorilla and whale. The story goes that there was a very large man who worked for Toho, and someone called him a gorilla, and someone else said, no, no, he's more like a whale. When the two words were put together, Gojira became his nickname. Producers heard this and thought it would be a great name for the monster. 
Ashiro Honda's wife said the story probably is not true, that the name was created after a careful discussion between Honda, Tanaka, and Subaraya. In later interviews, one of the men who wore the Godzilla suit said that the producers had a contest to name the creature. Honda and Takeo Murata wrote the screenplay in about three weeks. The only instructions Tanaka was given was not to spend too much money. They changed the scientist from a mad scientist to an ordinary scientist. The thought was that Godzilla itself is so weird, to have a weird doctor as well was well too much weirdness. They also developed a love triangle between Imoko, Agata, and Dr. Serizawa. This would make Dr. Serizawa's sacrifice at the end more powerful. The monster was also changed from a wild beast that came ashore to feed to the dinosaur type we know today. He would be just out for the thrill of destruction, I guess. The next job was to design the monster. The creature's appearance was never actually described in the script. They asked many artists in Japan to create a drawing of what they think the monster should look like, but nothing made them happy. The art department at Toho then took on the task by using a children's dinosaur encyclopedia and a special dinosaur issue of American Life magazine for inspiration. They wanted to create something original, unique, yet recognizable. So they took aspects of different dinosaurs to create Godzilla's look. They wanted something that made it look like it went through an atomic blast. They combined the images of a Tyrannosaurus with an Iguanodon, and then added the back plates of a Stegosaurus. And then in the final model, they added scarring that made it look like it had been an atomic blast. Now, special effects man Subaraya wanted to do Godzilla in stop motion, like his favorite film, King Kong. But because of time and cost, that was deemed impossible. It was estimated it would take him seven years to complete the special effects in stop motion. Also, no one in Japan had any knowledge of how to do something like that, so they opted for a man in a suit. While this seemed like an easy solution, it turned out not to be so, because no one had ever built a rubber suit like the one needed for the film. The first prototype suit was built in secret and came out looking wonderful, but it weighed over 100 kilograms, or over 200 pounds. They also used cheap latex, which, to the maker's surprise, hardened like a rock. So the actor, once in the costume, couldn't move at all. It seemed they were so worried about the design of the suit, they forgot to think about its practical applications. A second suit was quickly put into production. The second suit wasn't much better. It was still heavy and stiff, but it still had enough movement to make it suitable. The original suit was cut in half at the waist, the bottom could be worn with suspenders and could be used for close-ups of the feet when crushing buildings. Now, I really enjoy this film, but there are a couple moments that, well, make me giggle a little. One was the toy helicopter blowing over during the storm on the island. The other is when Godzilla appeared over the hills, and it's obviously a hand puppet. So what is this film Godzilla all about? Come on, do I really have to tell you what Godzilla is about? It's basically a giant prehistoric monster that starts to terrorize Japan. Paleontologist Kiyoke Yomana tries to figure things out. Meanwhile, Dr. Serizawa has invented a horrible device that could solve the problem called the Oxygen Destroyer. 
Serizawa has eyes for the beautiful Imoko, and apparently they have an, an arranged marriage thing happening, but she's in love with Hidiko. So the big question is, will Serizawa allow his super weapon to be used before Japan is destroyed? And which of the two men will Imoko end up with at the end? At this time, NBC interrupts its regular program schedule to bring you a history-making broadcast, the actual dropping of the bomb at Bikini. In a matter of minutes now, an army super fortress will drop that bomb on target ships in Bikini Lagoon. Five, four, three, two, I have a couple of favorite scenes in this film. One of my favorites, of course, is when the monster breathes fire on the power lines. They appear to turn white hot and then melt over. This was done by making the towers out of white wax, then painting them black. When they were heated, the paint quickly burns off, leaving the white wax, which slowly melts. It's a wonderful effect. Then there's that haunting scene right after the deadly attack, when the children are singing a prayer in the church. It's so somber it sends chills up the spine. And we'll talk about the music in the film a bit later. Now during the raid there's that scene I mentioned earlier where the mother is clutching her young children as Godzilla tramples the city. She cries, soon we will be with your father, as she expects them all to be killed. Later in the hospital we see her die as her children look on. Now, Honda and Tsuburaya went to great lengths to recreate the details of Tokyo in miniature. They tried to get blueprints of famous buildings to get them exactly right. There's a famous story in which the special effects crew was on top of a building looking over the city, discussing which buildings they could destroy and how they would destroy it. A security guard overheard them and he quickly ran to get the police. They were questioned and only after showing them their Toho business cards were they allowed to leave. It took over a month with 30 to 40 workers working to create the city in miniature. The rubber Godzilla suit was a big problem during the filming. It was so hot in the suit and it took so much energy to get the movement that the actors who wore it could only do it for a few minutes at a time. Sometimes they'd have bouts of heat exhaustion and dehydration to the point of passing out while in the costume. Other crew members would have to help them out of the suit, sometimes finding almost a cup of sweat in the bottom. Some say they installed a drainage system at the bottom of the suit to let the sweat escape. The suit's tail was attached by wires and controlled by off-camera technicians. Now, because the suit got so much heavier when submerged in water, when we see the monster in the water, it's actually on a movable platform. So the actor could just stand in place and get pulled along by the platform. Akira E. Fukabe, the musical composer for the film, got the job of figuring out how to make the sounds of Godzilla. He created that famous roar. 
Ikafube spent time at the zoo listening to various animals for ideas, but nothing seemed right for the monster. He ended up using a double bass, and while wearing a coarse leather glove, rubbed it up and down the strings, and then played with the recording until he came up with just the right sound. Now, I have to say that all the actors in this film gave it their all. Nobody was phoning it in. The beautiful Momiko Koche plays Imiko Yomana, and she's just wonderful. She just seems to have this fantastic innocence about her. She did an interview with CNN in 1995 after she returned to the Godzilla franchise, playing the same character in Godzilla vs. Destroya, and she said, After the first Godzilla movie, people pointed at me and said, Godzilla, Godzilla, Godzilla. As a young woman, I hated Godzilla, so I thought, no more Godzilla for me. But 41 years later, I watched the film again and realized how great it was for its anti-nuclear theme. Yohei Miyani is played by Tashiro Shimori. Shimori was a well-respected actor who appeared in many Kurosawa films, including Drunken Angel, Rashomon, and The Seven Samurai. The eyepatch-wearing Dr. Serizawa is played by character actor Akiriko Hereda. Hereda would go on to be in a bunch of Godzilla films. Now, when the film was brought to America and was Americanized, Many of the scenes referring to the atom bomb were cut out. One was the mother with her children about to die scene that I talked about earlier. And then there was the scene where Dr. Serizawa talks about the oxygen destroyer. He says, If my device can serve a good purpose, I would announce it to everyone in the world. But in its current form, it's just a weapon of horrible destruction. Please understand. When they ask for the weapon to be used against Godzilla, Serizawa responds, Orgata, if the action destroyer is even used once, politicians from around the world will see it. Of course they'll want to use it as a weapon. Bombs versus bombs, missiles versus missiles, and now a new superweapon to throw upon us all. As a scientist, no, as a human being, I can't allow that to happen. Am I right? If I understand it correctly... The characters weren't actually talking about the oxygen destroyer, as you may have guessed. It's Ashira Honda pleading to the world about the atomic bomb. The slow pan of the aftermath of the attack on Tokyo, with the city in ruins, was taken directly from what Honda had seen at Hiroshima. One of the highlights of this film is the music. Akira Fukube created some great tunes. Let's hear some of the highlights.
It's just amazing. The military march, this, would end up being Godzilla's theme from then on. Anyway, they spent 71 days shooting the picture. Normal filming in Japan at the time was done between working hours, like from 9 to 5. But because of the inexperienced crew and the effects being used, sometimes filming didn't start until late in the afternoon, or not until evening. The schedule was so tight that crew members basically ate and slept at the studio for months, many of them working all night on the project. When the film was released on November 3, 1954 in Japan, the critics trashed it. Why are we making these special effect monster movies, they asked. Those are for Americans. They accused the film of exploiting the widespread devastation that the country had suffered during World War II, as well as the Lucky Dragon No. 5 incident. Ashiro Honda said years later, they called it grotesque junk. They said it looked like something you'd spit up. I felt sorry for my crew because they worked so hard. But that didn't stop the film's success. With a budget of 60 million yen, the film grossed 225 million. That's about two and a quarter million in U.S. money. It was huge in 1954. And as time went on, the film gained more respect. In 1984, a Japanese magazine listed Gojiro as one of the top 20 Japanese films of all time, while a survey of 370 Japanese movie critics ranked Godzilla as the 27th best Japanese film ever made. And it really is a powerful film, much more than I think people give it credit for. Now at the end of the film, and yeah, I know Godzilla killed thousands of people and destroyed most of Tokyo, but I still can't help but feel sorry for the creature. You know, they go underwater to find him, and he's just sitting there at the bottom, chilling. He almost looks like he could be getting ready to watch a ball game or something, and then zap, they use the oxygen destroyer. When he pops out of the water, you can almost see that WTF look on its face. Now, like I said, I love this film, but does everybody? Let's find out. For this, I'm turning to the IMDb Film Reviews. ZachLong400148221 gave it 10 out of 10 stars, and Zach wrote this. One of the best monster films out there, but my favorite personally. This movie not only changed Japanese pop culture, but also American. I've always loved Godzilla, but none of the 27 sequels ever came close to how haunting this film is. That is because of how seriously they take the film. It's not just a film where there's a creature that pops up. It adds a story behind it which makes the film anti-war. Even though the film is only a guy in a rubber suit, they do the shots to make the creature seem big in size. They do this by using different camera angles. Gojiro is a masterpiece because Toho has done something unique with a monster movie and used a good-sized budget. Well, at least it was at the time. Very well said, Zach. Mardellus Flossen 01 gave it seven stars, and he or she had this to say. It's a black and white classic. The first in the series, and it does look goofy at times, while still a part of the scenes look well made in 1954. The plot around it offers a nice drama, even if flawed, and without giving anything away, I did like the ending. The music and Godzilla's roar stands out. Imagining movie history without Godzilla, Gojira, is not possible. It turned into a cult. All right. Paul Hankinson gave it four stars. Only four, and he wrote this. 
This 1954 Gojira movie is the movie that kickstarted the franchise, but oddly so since the movie hardly was all that fantastic. Granted, we need to keep in mind that the movie was made in 1954, but still, it wasn't a particularly thrilling or exciting movie. I found the storyline to be slow, dull, and rather mundane, actually, and I started to drift towards Dreamland more than once throughout the course of this one hour and 36 minutes that the movie ran for because it felt like a three or four hour long movie. It was interesting, though, that they opted to kill Godzilla off in the movie, but I guess they weren't counting on it sparking a massive franchise. So, Paul, you found the movie slow, dull, and rather mundane. Wow, I think you've been watching too many Michael Bay movies. Anyway, Jake Westhead 5 gave it only one star, just one. And he wrote, Very boring, only hardcore, new generation bent on destruction fans who aren't into character development will like this. Okay, Jake West, um, I have nothing to say about that. One thing I could really appreciate about this movie is that it's the scientists who are the voice of reason. The politicians are all seen running around, infighting and whatnot, and it appears that Honda didn't have much faith in politicians. Now, yes, there are some problems with the film Godzilla, like the obvious miniatures, or the bottle rockets hitting the backdrop, and don't even get me started on the oxygen destroyer. But come on, use a little suspension of disbelief. And what sets this film apart from so many other giant monster films is we see the human toll. You see men, women, and children dying, something that was toned down on later films. I mean, there's a scene in which a child actually watches her mother die. It's a very heartbreaking scene. On the DVD commentary by Steve Rifle and Edgar DeSicchi, they point out that none of the main characters is ever really in danger. They all watch the destruction from a safe distance. It's an interesting contrast between this movie and American movies of the same type and period. The characters in Godzilla aren't action heroes, though. That's the one big difference. Their heroics are the moral and ethical choices they make rather than firing a bazooka or flying a fighter plane. And now let's talk about the Raymond Burr Americanized version called Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Emiko. Emiko. Steve. Steve Martin. Are you badly hurt? After last night, I'm lucky to be alive. I guess we're all living on borrowed time. Oh, Steve, what brought this upon us? I don't know, Emiko. This film was produced by Edmund Goldman, who bought the American rights in 1955. Look, I really don't have a problem with it. In fact, I think it was pretty clever the way they worked Raymond Burr into the story. And you can't really compare it to the original because they're two totally different films. The original Godzilla being a metaphor for the atomic bomb and Godzilla King of the Monsters being a great drive-in theater aimed at kids and teenagers. It worked fine. And, you know, it was responsible for introducing Godzilla to a worldwide audience. And it was nice that they didn't overdub the whole film. They kept a lot of the original Japanese. All the new scenes, with Burr and a bunch of body doubles, was filmed on a soundstage in three days. 
and apparently the great James Hong was one of the voice actors used for the parts that were overdubbed. The film was a huge success in the U.S. and was released internationally. It became the 79th top-grossing film of 1957. Of course, it's hard to watch it these days because Raymond Burr's character has the same name as a certain wild and crazy guy. Martin, you are Mr. Steve Martin? Yes. I'm Shigeli Otto, assistant to Dr. Serizawa. Oh, how do you do? And how is Serizawa? His health is fine, but he regrets not being here to meet you. And you know, even though I enjoyed that movie as a, a child, I, I think I'll stick to the original 1954 version from now on. All Earth Council, in its infinite wisdom, has decided these two numbers are to be disposed of. The Biochemical Forum has demands to make on their parts, however, before they are eliminated. That's the kind of efficiency that makes you proud to live in this era. You have asked, are we happy? Are we happy and effective? Consultation with leading experts in the field makes it perfectly clear, perfectly clear, that we are all now programmed for perfect happiness. Perfect happiness. Perfect happiness. Perfect happiness. A little bit before I go, I didn't talk about the two American films. First, there was the 1998 film starring Matthew Broderick, directed by Roland Emmerich. Man, I was so excited when I first heard about this film and so disappointed after I saw it. The film was a mess. I could spend two hours talking about everything that's wrong with this movie. And then there's the 2014 version, which I liked. I like the fact they paid respect to the original film, like having some of the same characters, like Dr. Sarazawa. My biggest problem with the film was Brian Cranston. Well, not Cranston himself. He's a wonderful actor and the best part of the film. But it's the way, and this is a spoiler, the way they killed him off halfway through the movie. It was just such a letdown. He basically dies off camera. His story, in my opinion, never being resolved. It was just so heartbreaking. I kept waiting for him to come back, like he didn't really die. Anyway, I was disappointed. But if you've got any thoughts about Godzilla, any of the movies, or any of the actors, feel free to send me an email. You can send it to daysofcelluloid, all one word, at gmail.com. Or you can use my Facebook page, it's called Celluloid Days. Or my Twitter page, it's at celluloid underscore days. Next week, we're going to do a film I haven't seen in a long, long time. In fact, a film I can't remember anything about, and that's George Lucas's THX 1138. This film stars Robert Duvall and Donald Pleasance. I can't even remember if I liked it or not, so now I have to find a copy. Now, before I leave, I have one more request. Could you give me a review, hopefully a good one at wherever you stream this podcast? I'd be forever grateful. Thanks for listening. Take care, stay healthy, and I'll be back next week. Bye. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Dallas Multipass. You're stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing.